Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Rob Basham. So over the past couple of weeks, I've been on a good number of airplanes, took a whole lot more airplanes than I wish it did to get to the Middle East. And before that, I was speaking in Pennsylvania, and so I was on a couple of airplanes to get to Pittsburgh. And I actually don't mind flying. I love traveling, and I don't mind flying. I, I don't mind flying, and, and I prefer generally a window seat. I prefer a window seat because I love, there's nothing, I just absolutely love opening a window and seeing on a clear day or a clear night from a new vantage point. I love seeing the planes and the cities when the lights are on and people going from here to there. And there's something for me about sitting on a plane and getting this new perspective that allows me to reflect on my own life and the lives of those I love and just what my purpose is on a new level. There's something about that different vantage point. And I have trouble doing it when my feet are on the ground, but somehow when I'm in the air, I see this. It's when I'm in the air that I often recognize my insignificant my insignificance and my creator's incredible sovereignty, his sovereignty over the creation below. I often try to sit in that posture while I'm on the plane, and, and it's, uh, it's strangely refreshing. It's strangely humbling, and it's oddly worshipful. Some of the most worshipful moments that I've had with God have been on a plane sitting in the window seat. I don't understand those of you that fight for the aisle. <laughs> there, there's just something about it. But it's that stepping back and getting a new perspective that we serve a God who is sovereign. And church, that's what I want to talk to you about today. See, we're in our series on Daniel, and today we're jumping into Daniel 5. And we're, we're looking at this guy named King Belshazzar, the main character here. And he needed one of these moments where he looked at life from a new perspective, from a new vantage point. He needed to step back and see this. You see, this is a chapter that is often called the chapter that's a warning on pride. And, and we'll see that it is, but it's deeper than that. You see, he didn't recognize God's sovereignty. And instead, he doubles down on his self-reliance and on his arrogance. And we'll see that the outcome is not good. So if you would, turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. If you're using the Bible that's there in the pew before you, it's on page 730. Daniel's an incredible book. Many people have been coming up and saying we love this study on Daniel. Daniel's one of my favorite books. It's just a, a book of wisdom, a book that helps us learn how to live as exiles, how we, the church, need to learn how to operate from the fringes of society when we're not in control. It's apocalyptic literature. It's just unique in multiple ways. And today we're in Daniel 5. We're skipping over chapter 4. Much of chapter 4 we'll touch on today because it's actually summarized here in chapter 5. But the setting that is happening now is King Belshazzar has now been made king. There's been one or two short-lived kings in between King Nebuchadnezzar and him. King Nebuchadnezzar is likely his grandfather or great-grandfather. But he's about to throw a party that we're going to read about. But the thing that you need to know is while he's throwing this party outside the city walls, there's a major battle that's been going on. See, the Medes and Persians are attacking his empire, looking to take over it. And yet, within the safety of the city walls, this arrogant king decides to throw a party. Daniel 5, verse 1. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold cups, the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple. 
the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Then it gets really weird. (laughs) Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath, gave way beneath him. Let me pause there. The great artist Rembrandt tries to depict what is happening in this scene, and we'll put that up here so that you can take a look at it as we continue to march through this chapter. But what happens next is, as we've seen in Daniel over and over, there is a leader that is looking for a supernatural answer to a supernatural event that has taken place. And so he calls the enchanters and the fortune tellers and the astrologers and he demands that they give an answer. What does the writing on this wall mean? They once again come up empty. Enters the queen mom, probably the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, who kind of comes in and sees the commotion and quickly tells Belshazzar, what do you think you're doing? The person you need to talk to is the one who knows the Lord most high, the God of the heavens. His name is Daniel. He's a forgotten government administrator at this point. It has been decades since he has been brought in before the king, it would seem. At this point, he's probably in his late 80s, early 90s. And yet Daniel is summoned. And Daniel enters into the room, seeing Seeing the incredible reminder of the goblets that are from the temple of the God he worships being blasphemed right here. And Daniel enters into the picture, and we pick it back up in verse 18. Daniel, speaking to King Belshazzar, says, Your Majesty, the Most High God gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill. He spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor. And he disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the most high God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You are his successor, O Belshazzar. And you knew all of this, yet, yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven, and you have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to give you this message. And the chapter continues on. And the the meaning of the words, many, many, tekel and parson are given. Many meaning simply that the days of his reign are over. Tekel meaning that he has been put on the balances and he is not balanced. He is not measured up. Parson meaning that the kingdom is done. It will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And in verse 30, we see that that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over as king at the age of 62. This is the sovereign word of the Lord. Church, it's a fascinating chapter. 
It's a fascinating chapter, and in, in one way, in a non-almost spiritual way, it's pretty cool that we get this back, you know, insider view of what happens behind the scenes in a major event in history. We're given this, and we know that the truth is that other historical documents show that this happened, that the night that the great Babylonian Empire fell, there had been a great party. The, the, the Medes and the Persians were able to overtake. They drained the moat. They came right in. They took over. They took over the kingdom of Babylon with barely a fight, and the king was killed on that night. But the major theme that I see here that we need to apply to our lives is once again, God is breaking through and demonstrating that he is sovereign. It is God Almighty who rules in the individual lives of each of the nobles here, who rules corporately, politically, in the life of the king, who rules in this pluralistic society of Babylon. Over and over, God keeps showing up, prophetically breaking in and making it known that he is the one. He is Almighty, whether it be through dreams, whether it be through the furnace, whether it be through the supernatural humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar, or whether it be with the strange writing on the wall here, the sovereign God of heaven rules. He's the one who gives the breath. He's the one who appoints the rulers. He is the one who sustains life. And Daniel 5 reminds us that we all, every one of us are under his rule in his reign, whether we acknowledge it or not. Church, to declare this truth, to live like the God of heaven truly does live, truly breaks in, that he is sovereign, takes an incredible level of humility and faith on our part. Belshazzar, he struggled to get this. Thus the prophetic warning and judgment came upon him. But I believe that there are some lessons that we can learn, learn from his mistakes. And so today I want to give us two questions of conviction And then I want to provide us an invitation. Two questions of conviction. And the first one is this. How, like Belshazzar, are we allowing our arrogance to cheapen the sovereignty of God? How are we allowing our pride to cheapen the sovereignty of God? It's from Proverbs 16 that we get the saying, pride comes before the fall. And it's a saying that we use all the time. The creators of YouTube love this saying because it's made them a lot of money. You see, pride becomes before the fall has given us an amazing amount of videos that are epic fails where people get built up and they think they can accomplish something and they can't. Pride comes before the fall is really, we see it throughout scripture, but it's, it's a saying and, and we love a good humbling story until it happens to us. Here's a picture of kind of what is now the modern-day merry-go-round. If you've been to Bush Park, there's one of these there, right? And some of you have probably put your kids on these, and they kind of go up. This picture is deceiving. They go up on the one side, about a foot and a half off the ground. They're a lot of fun. We used to love these. We'd put on our kids on these all the time. We'd have kind of balance wars. And, and about a year ago, we were on a pastoral management retreat with some of our leaders here at Sam Alliance. And of course, what do we do when there's a couple of men that see playground? We decide, we got to go playground, check it out. And so so this next picture just happens to be three-fourths of your preaching team. Uh, Steve Fowler, Brian Candelo, and I trying to see who's king of the hill and who has the best balance. They would disagree, and they can probably prove that that's not true. But anyway, we, we were on that for a little while. We had a good time, and all was well, and nobody got hurt. And then, then Brian had this great idea. I wonder how fast we could get that. I think you're pretty good at this, Rob. How fast could we get that thing going with you staying on it? And, and I took the bait, and I stayed on there, and it, pride comes before the fall. I went flying. 
I went flying and I went into a beautiful tuck and roll and popped back up. And I said, that was pretty graceful. And they said, no, it wasn't. And luckily no one had it on video, at least that I know of. It could show up someday, but I'm pretty sure nobody had it on video. But my humbling began. And I sat there in front of my peers, kind of embarrassed that I had done something so dumb and had fallen for it, and they got their good laugh. And the humbling continued that night as the pain in my shoulder began to increase and as I did not sleep. And the humbling was finished the next morning when I went to Steve Fowler and said, uh, can you take me to the ER? <laughs> See, pride comes before the fall, but we know here that Belshazzar's humbling moment is a bit more severe than mine. You see, pride and arrogance in his life were behaviors that were born out of his diminishing of God's sovereignty and rule. And it goes, this issue goes all the way back to the garden. This is what happened in the garden. But scripture sees this pattern over and over. King Saul, Nimrod, Satan himself, pride comes before the fall. You see, church, in our arrogance, over and over, we question how much control truly, how much authority truly does this God of heaven really possess over our lives? And here we have a king throwing a banquet, throwing a banquet while his kingdom is under attack. Absolute arrogance and God breaks in. God broke into the natural and he used Daniel to remind Belshazzar of something that he should have already known. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, likely his grandfather, struggled with the same thing. It ran in the family. It was a family sin pattern. But his grandfather, his grandfather, as we see in chapter 4, was the builder of the great empire of Babylon, of this great city. And in chapter 4, we see that he's walking on his, his balcony, and he's looking out over the city of Babylon. And he says this, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this city. I have built it as my royal royal residence to display my majestic splendor. And the verse goes on and tells us, while me and my were still on his lips, God broke in with the humbling, giving him the mind of an animal. King Nebuchadnezzar was never the same. He was changed, but he learns the lesson and he is restored to power. Why? Because he understood the truth of God's sovereignty. We see that in verse 21 of chapter 5. It says, he learned that the most high God rules over the kingdoms of the world, and it's the most high God who appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. With King Belshazzar, it's a different story. With his immense pride, the mighty Babylon, Babylonian empire falls. Why? Because the sovereign God allows it to. That's why. With no real fight, the kingdom is handed over. You see, Belshazzar is having one of these look at me moments. Recognize my greatness. Look at my confidence. Because my kingdom's under attack, I'm not worried. Look at me. Look at the power that I have. In church, we have those moments ourselves all the time. Our Belshazzar moments in our own culture are look at me as a parent. My kids are knocking it out of the park. Look at that report card. Look how they're doing at choir. Look at their success in sports. Look at they're all still coming to church. I'm doing this really well. This parenting thing's not that hard. Our Belshazzar moments come when we say, look at the business that I launched. Look how successful it is. Look at my ingenuity. Look at how entrepreneurial I am. Look what I have created. Those moments come when we put together our incredible retirement package and look at the protection that I have created for my family. Look at how I have set my kids up for great success. Look what I have done to build generational wealth. Church, we fall into the same traps all the time. It looks differently for us, but we are there as well. We have these look at me desire moments. 
We need to be careful not to take credit for that which isn't fully ours to create credit for because it diminishes God's sovereignty. You see, the unfortunate and yet beautiful truth is that God loves you, God likes you, but God is not overly impressed by you or your accomplishments. Church, he's not. He's not that impressed by our gifting, by our intelligence. He's not that impressed by our innate abilities. He gave them all to us. They are a gift from him. And sometimes we need to stop boasting and step back and start acknowledging, start worshiping, start declaring that he is sovereign. And so today, this week, would you humble yourself in his presence? Would you declare that he is the one that rules and reigns in your life? Would you let him search for some of those areas that you have held on to and you do not want to give to him? I don't know what that might look like for you to make this part of your daily routine, but can I encourage you to make sure that it becomes part of your daily routine, a daily submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Maybe daily you recite the Lord's Prayer. If you do, can I encourage you to stop on the hallowed be your name and recognize his holiness and his sovereignty in your life. For some of you, you're older and you grew up in a church where the doxology was sung every single weekend. Maybe start singing that every day. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Some of you are younger and you've never heard of this thing called the doxology. That's okay. You've heard of Kanye. Kanye came out with a new album this week, and it's incredible. It's called Jesus is King, and the man has gone through some sort of humbling and declarations of God's sovereignty is all throughout that album. Can I encourage you to listen to it and meditate on the words and see God's sovereignty? I don't know what it will take for you, but would you dwell on the fact that God is King? Through our humility, our worship, and our gratefulness, we acknowledge the sovereignty of the God of heaven. Here in chapter 5, Belshazzar's arrogance has led not only to just his pride taking him down, but he commits an act of sacrilege. He creates a, a direct rebellion against God's sovereignty by bringing these goblets out. By bringing the goblets from this temple out, from the temple that our God dwells in, he is created, it's blasphemy. He's saying that this God who once dwelt there, who was feared by all the surrounding nations, is now dead, has no significance, and is conquered and captured. He's celebrating himself while blaspheming the God of heaven. And it doesn't go well. But I believe it leads to a second question that we need to consider today. How, like Belshazzar, are we living like the sovereign God is captured and conquered? How, in our culture today, are we living like he has been captured and conquered? What do I mean by this? Look at these questions and consider them. Where are we living as though he is powerless? Where are we living as though his authority is limited? Where are we living as though he needs to be defended? If only Belshazzar had stepped back and paused and considered these questions, would he not have realized the folly of his actions? Would he not have realized that he was not sitting under the sovereignty of the God who had humbled his great-grandfather? You see, church, the reality is that he is not conquered. He is not captured. He is sovereign. He is almighty. And he breaks into the natural when he wants. He saves. He heals. He gives dreams. He brings warning and conviction. He lavishes love and he administers justice. But church, do we believe this? 
Do we really believe this? Have not some of us created some version of a tame God? Have we not created some version of a Mr. Rogers type God? Have we not created some version of a God that is simply always unfailingly kind and nice and polite? Have we created a God who can't offend anyone? Have we created a God who is all gentleness and never ferocious, full of tolerance and only grace? Have we created a God that is more passive than he is powerful? Church, are we living like the sovereign God has been captured and tamed and conquered? When Belshazzar's arrogance grants him the courage to pull back the curtain in Wizard of Oz terms, it's not smoke and mirrors that he expected. It's the all-powerful God of heaven, the sovereign, the almighty that he's confronted with. The king of kings is there and he is done. The writing is literally on the wall. Belshazzar, he's caught off guard by the writing. His knees knock. He falls over trembling. He is surprised. He is caught off guard when God shows up and breaks in. How often I am caught off guard when God shows up and breaks in. How often I'm caught off guard when he brings strong conviction through his word, other people, or tough circumstances. How often I am surprised when he heals, when he provides, when he wakes me up with a dream. Church, we need to have a posture of expectant hearts. See, I have seasons where I walk with great expectancy, and I have seasons where I walk a bit apathetic, a bit numb, a bit sitting under disappointment that God's not coming through in the ways I think he should. I love the seasons where I have an expectant heart. Generally, they launch with God breaking through and getting my attention and doing something great. I remember one of these, it was shortly after we had our first baby, and Jess and I were, were struggling. Our, our, youngest, our oldest, Sidon, had become mobile, and life got a little difficult when Sidon became mobile, and she's getting into everything. And I remember we went to the store to buy a, a gift for another friend that had just had a baby, and we see one of these saucers where you can, without guilt, put your, your, your kid in this little safe seat, and they can entertain themselves, and you can actually get stuff done or sleep. They're incredible inventions. And we saw this thing, and we looked at each other, and we said, we need that. But the price was a little more than we had. There wasn't a lot of excess income in our life in those days. And, and so we couldn't buy it. And we lamented that as we drove away. And, and that night we went to our community group that we led that was being hosted by some friends and in the city of Boston and in this apartment building. And we went in and we kind of lamented like, yeah, yeah, life's been pretty rough right now. Sidon's crawling everywhere. We wish we had this thing that we saw today. And a person just stopped and said, let's just pray that God gives you that. And we prayed, and about an hour and a half later, after community group was over, we walked outside to go to our car, and there on the curb next to our car was the saucer. Somebody in the apartment complex was getting rid of their gently used one, the same one that we had seen earlier that day. And I remember saying, Lord, wow. You got my attention. It launched a season of great expectancy, but for me, those seasons come and go, and oftentimes I have to be careful because I let disappointment come in and rob me of some of that. Requests for healing, breakthrough, salvation for a friend, dreams, uh, just what I want to see God do in this city. Sometimes I start to lose that expectancy. And for me, I start to replace that expectancy with expectation. In church, there's a dangerous difference between these. I forget who it was that I heard this teaching from years ago, but it wrecked me. This concept right here, 
Expectation is premeded disappointment, where expectancy involves faith. You see, expectation means that we have decided in our own sovereignty the way it needs to go. This is the way it needs to turn out for it to be okay, where expectancy engages our faith in the fact that God breaks in the way he wants to. In his sovereignty, he's active, and it opens up the possibility that he may respond in ways that we weren't looking for, in ways and in times that we least expected. Expectancy builds faith. Expectation can diminish sovereignty. And so, church, this morning, can we repent some of some of our sovereignty? We know best thinking. Can we look at the expectations that we've sent and repent of some of the conclusions we've drawn about the God of heaven because of our disappointments and un- unmet expectations? We need to declare his sovereignty and wait expectantly for him to break through. Let me now turn and give you an invitation. Because what I see here in the narrative of Scripture is something powerful. You see, here in Daniel 5, we're given this challenge. We're given a challenge, and we see a God breakthrough. The same God breaks through here. It's the same God we've been worshiping and asking to break through here this morning. It's the same God. We see his actual hand come and write on the wall here in Daniel 5. His hand comes and brings judgment here in Daniel 5. It brings judgment because the first time that the hand of God enters into the natural and we see the finger of God right is on the Mount Sinai. It's with Moses. And God carves into these stone tablets the Ten Commandments. He brings the law. He breaks in and with his finger he writes the law. We're given the law, but here we see Belshazzar violating the first three commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You can't. No other gods. You shall make no idols, and you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And so the second prophetic breaking through of God's finger happens, and we see judgment pronounced. We have law, and we have judgment. Belshazzar shows no repentance. His heart is hard. He doesn't respond in light of the prophetic interruption. But church, it's not the last time that we see the finger of God right. It's not the last time because we have this story in John 8 where there's a woman who is caught in adultery who is brought to Jesus by the Pharisees. The Pharisees are looking to trap Jesus in an argument, and they say, we need to stone her. She has been caught in adultery. What Jesus, what God does is he kneels down, and with his finger, he writes something in the dust. What I would give to know what he writes. He stands back up, and he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And he kneels back down, and he writes some more in the dust. The finger of God writing something there. But what happens next is amazing, because one by one, these men leave. There is no condemnation that is brought upon this woman. Instead, what happens is this God, who has become man, releases grace. The woman is removed of the condemnation, and she goes free. Church, grace comes through the finger of God here as well. And we see that shortly after this, Jesus announces, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will not have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. The prophetic breaking in happens again, and God becomes man to bring us grace. The theologian John Lennox summarizes this beautifully. He says that the same hand that wrote the law on the stone tablets for Moses wrote on the wall in Babylon and on the dusty ground in Jerusalem, and it writes still on repentant and believing hearts. 
Church, it's true. The finger of God still writes on repentant and believing hearts. 2 Corinthians 3.3 tells us that God, that we, the church, are a letter not written on with pen and ink, but written on by the Holy Spirit. Through his finger, he writes on the hearts that are believing and repentant. He declares us his own. The prophetic breaking in came. It gave us the law. It came with judgment. But with the breaking in of Christ, it brought us grace from condemnation, sin, and death. This is the gospel, and this takes humility to believe. It takes humility to confess with our mouths that he is Lord, that he is the source of every breath, that he appoints the rulers, that he is the one who rules and reigns. It takes faith to live a life of expectancy as though God has not been captured or conquered, that he has not been tamed. You see, the world thought that he had been tamed because he went to the cross and he died carrying our sins and condemnation for us, and he was put in the grave. But as we already sang today, the grave was only borrowed because today we look at the empty grave and we realize that he was not conquered, he was not captured. He is alive and well, and he is sovereign and acting in our lives today. And so this morning, the the invitation is this. As we close in worship, there are some of us that are in ruts. We've been running hard on our own strength, governing our own little kingdoms, diminishing his sovereignty. We've been saying me and my a lot more than we should. And we haven't taken the time to fully declare his rule and his reign. It has been a while since we have submitted every aspect of our lives to his lordship. And so this morning as we worship, I want to invite you. We believe here at Sam Alliance that holy moments often require movement. You can do this at your seat, but can I encourage you to come to the altar, which will be open, and get on your knees and declare his authority, his rule and reign over every last part of your life. And some of you this morning, you were brought here, and God is stirring something in you. And in your pride, you have never submitted to him in any way. And you're tired. Can I encourage you this morning to come to the cross, to submit to him fully and to begin a relationship with him, to let him carry the burden, to let him carry the condemnation, to let him carry the heaviness and begin a new journey today with him. So church, as we worship, spirit fall, bring your comfort, but also bring your conviction. We declare that you are sovereign in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.